Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We have attorney Alexander Pakin here with us today. Alexander, it's a pleasure having you on. Thank you again for doing this. It's a pleasure. And before we talk business, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So where are you from and why did you get into this industry? All right. Well, that's going to be a long question. <laughs> um, so I'm originally from the Soviet Union, immigrated in 1989 via Italy, um, the way a large amount of Jewish diaspora came here. Right. Um, got stranded in Italy for just about nine months before coming to the States. Uh, that's actually where I started my first business, and that's also where I got my first passion for law, mm. um, ironically. So my first business in Italy was once I managed to fix up a squeegee, a bucket, and what passed for a bicycle, I engaged with local businesses, and before school every morning, I'd bike past and wash all their storefront windows. Wow. Um, not all the stores, but as many as agreed yeah. to have me. A uh, particular one was this uh, little bakery where this little old lady would feed me breakfast, uh, regardless of whether I was hungry or not. She would not take no for an answer. <laughs> um, and on the way back from school, she'd be holding out huge bags of all the morning pastries that hadn't sold. Hmm. So I'd bring those home, and then my parents would distribute them to other members of the oh, Jewish wow. immigrant community. Okay. So then I'd do my homework. And then I would bicycle over to a local pub. We lived in Santa Marinella. It's okay. a little tiny, tiny resort town outside of Rome. It just, we happened to get lucky. My dad got an overnight guard position mm -hmm. at, a, uh, at a marina. And of course, with no work visas, that was difficult. We couldn't be paid with real money. Right. So um, the marina owner had a villa and it had servant quarters. So the barter was we got to live in the servant quarters mm -hmm. for free and... Uh, my dad was the night guard at the marina. Wow. Um, yeah, PhD in mathematics as a night guard. Not really his, oh, wow. uh, his qualifications, <laughs> but it worked out. But I would bike over to a pub um, that was kind of a service area at the entrance to the town from the highway. Right. Um, and I washed all the cars in the parking lot, earned tips. And at the end of the night, I'd get all the food that hadn't sold. Mm. And uh, the, the owner of the pub would basically load me up with, you know, 25 people worth of dinner. Right. And I would drag that back on my bike. And again, distribution followed. Uh. So by the time we left Italy, I had saved up well over $1,000 to contribute to the family, which considering we were only allowed to leave the Soviet Union with $200 worth per yeah. person, um, you know, $1,000 was literally Pretty just good. as much as we left the country with. <laughs> So that was uh, my first job. And since we got stranded in Italy for so long, as I'm sure you know with your own family, yeah. the uh, immigration process into the US wasn't all that great back then either. Yeah. Uh, we got denied a couple of times. And um, you know, after leaving the Soviet Union on a promise that once we left the Soviet Union, America was waiting for us with open arms, yeah. you know, the, the standard promise. <laughs> so um, after two denials, there was this lawyer that came to Santa Marinella and he stood on a stone where everybody gathered to get their mail, the, the, the evening call. And he started pitching about how great he was as an immigration lawyer. And if we just gave him all the money we had, mm. we would get, um, you know, we'd get to go to the U.S. And my parents, you know, at, at, for a while there, the term was fell for it. And saved up, scraped up every penny and paid him and submitted all the paperwork. And he disappeared. Mm. No, no responses at all. In retrospect, looking at it, I mean, that's basically how it works. Yeah. He took the money. He took the documents. He submitted everything. And he was waiting for a response from, at the time, INS. Mm. Remember that entity? Right. So for about two months, there was you know, this bitterness all in Santa Marinella from all the people who gave him money. And got nothing to show for it. And then one day at mail call, there's a whole bunch of overnights that arrive to a whole bunch of people who had hired him. Welcome to America. Wow. Get, pack your bags, you're going. <laughs> and that was it, just seeing my parents' reaction, just mm. seeing everybody's reaction. I thought to myself, like, there's a guy who can change a bunch of lives. Yeah. And, you know, more people should do that. So that was what first inspired me to go into law. Right. Okay. I see. So you wanted to do the same impact, but in a good way. Well, I mean, he 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 did he he made a massively good impact okay. for everybody there. Um, you know, I, I basically wanted to do what he did. Not necessarily in the immigration world. Right. I think I was too young to really consider what fields of law were available right. to me. But within the arena of law. But I wanted to go into law and make things better. Got it. Understood. Okay. And what inspired you to kind of specializing in real estate and commercial real estate and real estate litigation? So that came much later. 
Um, first, I first I got inspired into going into litigation by high school mock trial. Okay. So in my freshman year of high school, I already heard of high school mock trial through the New York State Bar Association, right. and I really wanted to participate. And I'd heard that at my school there was a team, and th this was going to be exciting. So first day of school, I start looking for it, and I discover that a couple of years back, it kind of died due to lack of interest. Mm. There was no team. So I went to Mr. Negra, high school uh, history teacher, who used to be the coach of the team. And he basically said, well, if you can gather some people together, you can, we can make a team out of it. Mm. And I hounded everybody I could find. And I hounded the administration to make repeated announcements, put up flyers, and we got our mock trial team. Mm. And for the next three years, that was basically my team. Um, I, I don't think I was ever officially given a title of captain. We didn't have those. But I mean, I ran the entire program completely. And I realized I wanted to litigate. I loved arguing and proving my point. <laughs> and that's just what I wanted to do with my life. Um, going into real estate came substantially later. I actually thought I was going to go into intellectual property law mm. because I had my undergrad as computer science. And all during high school and college, I ran companies that built custom software, mm. custom hardware. Uh, to this day, I'm a very high-tech person, so uh, I don't run the kind of law practice you've ever seen. We right. don't have filing cabinets. We don't have paper. Very new age. Um, yeah. Everything is run on apps and clouds, and I can run my entire firm from any device with an internet connection right. anywhere in the world and, or, uh, you know, and keep my staff working and manage all their tasks and assignments. Mm. But real estate, I went into basically because while I was in law school, I took a few classes on intellectual property. And I realized I'd rather know my own leg off and beat myself to death with it than ever having to practice intellectual <laughs> wow, okay. property law. It's just dry. It's like tax law. Yes, there's lots of money in it, but you have to enjoy the driest content all day, every day. Hmm. So when I graduated law school, I ended up leaving law school right in 2006 as the markets were doing their wonderful implosion right. in real estate. And I was invited by a friend of mine who was in... Um, in banking at the time, specifically doing mortgages, to come join him because it was still the end of the golden era of mortgages. And I said, not really, we're about to have a big collapse. So he and I and another guy um, started a company called Option Next, which was the first nationwide loss mitigation company that negoti specifically negotiated in wholesale loan modifications, short sales, and deed and loop. Oh, wow. So what we did was we allowed local retailers, real estate brokers, attorneys, accountants, to identify the client, get hired to do the loan modification, mm. collect all the necessary documents, and send them to us. Um, being the math and tech geek that I am, I actually built an automated portal, and I built something called the Murray Score, um, which I named after one of my high school teachers who used to refer to variables as Murray. You know, let's take a random variable. We'll call him Murray. <laughs> so uh, I built the Murray score, which based on the data that the end uh, retailer would input about their client, they could tell right away what the odds of success of a loan modification oh, are. Oh, wow. So basically, if you make way too much money, sorry, you don't qualify. We're not going to take your money and waste your time. Wow. If you make too little money, sorry, you don't qualify. We're not going to waste our time and your money. So we basically made a system that made loan modifications not a sure thing, but a high probability of success. Mm. Um, we were doing it wholesale. Unfortunately, a lot of fly-by-night companies appeared who promised what we were doing but didn't deliver. And almost every state passed what's called brick-and-mortar laws, mm. where they said in order to do loan mods and short sales related to real estate in our state, you must have a physical office and licensure within our state. I see. Well, that left me with, am I going to build 49 extra offices or do I leave myself to just New York? Yeah. And if I'm only going to be in New York, I may as well just stick the law office of in front of my name and call it a day. And so, and at that point, I figured I hadn't practiced law on my own enough that I wanted to just hang a shingle and hope I get it right. right. I wanted a couple of years of experience um, in a firm. So I went and got a job as an associate, mm -hmm. which at that point, it was uh, 2010. And the market was really crappy. Mm. So I got a job at a small firm. It just happened to have an opening for a foreclosure defense attorney who would also do loan mods and short sales. Mm. I came into a paper disaster. I mean, they gave me walls of filing cabinets and said, here's all your files. Good luck with them. They've been stagnating for a while. Wow. I digitized everything. I organized everything. I basically sorted out and got all those files done. 
And within two years, I basically said, all right, I've seen it all as far as what this firm has to offer. At this point, I can start my own and then I want to branch out. And so the way I ended up in real estate was just because that's where that first job happened to be. Right. And because of my experience with loan mods and short sales, that was essentially where I was most marketable. I see. And now looking back, you know, 12 years later, I'm perfectly happy where I am. Real estate law ended up being extremely interesting to me, both litigation and transactions. Commercial law is equally interesting. Right. And I really wouldn't have it any other way. That's amazing. That's great. And can you walk us through kind of the typical day as a real estate lit litigator and as a real estate lawyer? Is it structured or is every day kind of a different story? Oh, every day is violently different. <laughs> um, some days you just have one task, you know, an eight hour long deposition. Other days you're drowning in 300 emails and phone calls. It's wildly different. Mm -hmm. In fact, the commercial litigation is one of the hardest industries to staff for because what happens is a lot of stuff can happen all at once. Um, you know, five different cases get major motions filed. Right. For the next five days, you're setting your hair on fire trying to understand how to prioritize them and draft them. Then you draft all of your papers and you submit them and now you're waiting for the other side mm. or you're waiting for the judge. So there's a lot of hurry up and wait. There's a lot of uh, really busy weeks and then really quiet weeks where you're thinking, oh my God, am I going to go out of business? Right. And then as you're thinking that, your emails explode and you go, nope, still have plenty. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So how do you, how do you plan out your week um, in advance if, if kind of things come up randomly? Well, so one, technology is my friend. I use a practice management system called Clio, right. and that's a cloud-based system where all my matters reside, all the documents reside, all the, all the staff have uh, logins, and I can assign tasks to people. I can view on any, any device out there the status of every task. Right. It's like uh, Amazon deliveries. You know, I can see exactly where it is, what's going on with it. I use a whole bunch of integrations into the practice management system. Okay. So 24 hours, seven days a week, a very lovely and friendly receptionist will uh, answer the phone and connect you to me without you having to deal with an automated phone system. Mm. That phone call is automatically logged in the practice management system. And in many cases, it's even automatically tagged to a matter if it's matter related. Right. So the billing happens automatically. We use um, integrations for process servers where we can order process service right within Clio, get the affidavit of service right within Clio, upload it to the court system right within Clio, and the, the charge for it will end up as an expense on the client's bill at the end of the month right. without us having to do anything. So a lot of those kinds of things make it so that I can sort of plan my day. But also, you have to remember, law is not one of those things where too much happens instantly. Mm. So the big things are planned well in advance. That eight-hour deposition gets scheduled two months out, then mm. gets rescheduled four times because the date turned out not to be convenient for anybody. And so by the time it finally happens, you've been ready for it. You've had your day blocked off. Um, the little things are the real disruptors mm. whenever you get something totally out of left field. But you budget for that. In any given day, I try to give myself at least 60 minutes of what I call office hours. That's, you know, come to me with your problems. Everybody on the staff, you know, all the staff, all the clients, that's when I'm going to try to fire off as many solutions as I can right. and get back to what I'm trying to do. Got it. Understood. And what um, I'm seeing this trend where tech is kind of making your life easier and making things more efficient. What kind of tech do you see in real estate and, for example, property management that you're excited about for the next decade? Oh, there's lots. Um, real estate generally. Well, let me put it this way. There's the tech that we could have based on technology and there's the tech we could have based on reality. Right. So I'm sure you've heard a lot of talk of, oh, how great it'd be to, uh, to put real estate uh, title records on right. blockchain. In theory, it sounds good. but It sounds wonderful. Yeah. Good luck getting every county clerk in the country to, to agree on a system yeah. or even to figure out what a blockchain is. So in practice, when it comes to the transactional work, the filing of deeds, um, any kind of transfer documents, any kind of building records, mm -hmm. we're going to be at the mercy of the various departments and clerks, and it's going to move slowly. Yeah. Um, you know, in Nassau, they still rub um, signature lines on affidavits with their finger to make sure it's a real signature wow. and not a photocopy. Um, even though the CPLR allows them to accept photocopies, they will not. Um, wow. Not without an argument, <laughs> but uh, th that sort of thing means basically technology in transactions and in management can only be limited to stuff that doesn't interact with the government mm. in any way. But when you're not interacting with the government, as far as property management and day-to-day -day operations, 
there's some really cool tech out there. Some of it is old and dusty. I'm sorry for our neighbors here in Building Link, not too far away. Yeah. You guys made a great product. <laughs> it would be really awesome if you'd take some time and refresh it because it still looks like it's a great product from 2006. Right. Um, User interface is lacking. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the interface is horrible. The, it, it just doesn't feel like something belongs in 2023. Right. Um, take by comparison a product from Daisy. They're a property management company that's very new on the scene. And they've got vibrant apps, instant chat. You can literally complain about a leaky faucet, faucet 24-7 into a chat system. Um, there's human chat operators located around the world, so they have 24-hour uptime. And they can order you a plumber immediately. You can see progress reports. Basically, you can complain about a faucet leak and have the same kind of response as if you went on DoorDash and ordered a right, pizza. Yeah. You'd be able to see exactly where your plumber is, when they're coming, um, whether it's going to be covered by the building or whether there's a fee. If there's a fee, it'll be automatically passed through onto your account. You can see your balances live. As board members, we could log in and see every bit of finances about the building live and not wait for the monthly report right. and you know whenever the average property management company that uses paper is going to compile it for you right. you know and the giant pdf of every invoice from the last month here's your report good luck with it 150 <laughs> pages of nonsense right. it's like, can i have a chart can i have a diagram can i click through and drill down by category no here's your paper so i i shudder at that sort of thing and a lot of property management companies are still in that ancient world um the property management system, uh, company that uh, my building's using. I'm president of the board of a condo in Queens, and it, it's absolutely mind-numbing. I ask them, you know, oh, can I see the receipts for these 30 days? Oh, we can scan them in and put them on a Dropbox folder for you. Okay, okay. at least you can. I was hoping that they already were, and that when I asked for them, you'd send me an instant link, right. but apparently in three to five days, you can scan in 30 days' worth of documents. That's not okay. Yeah. But... That's where the industry is right now. Got it. And it's very quickly moving into that direction of being fully automated and very efficient. Well, I, I think it's being forced that way. Okay, so right. the companies that aren't able to compete successfully are get, either going to get gobbled up by ones that can 100%, yeah. or are just going to go out of business. 100%. So take, for example, I'm going to pick on you guys, Charles Greenthal. Um, they are not particularly tech active. They are, they've got a, a good book of business. And but, just keep it. But they're just, yeah, they're just maintaining the status yeah. quo. It, it, it's been boring with them for the last five or six years. So what happened? First service residential, which is a big and much more high tech and, and uh, vibrant company that knows how to nimbly adjust to the markets, right. went ahead and bought them. And uh, they're on a buying spree right now. They're going to be buying a couple of other dinosaurs. And uh, the residents in those buildings should be very happy because first service is going to give them a much more high-tech product right. much more leveraged efficiency from just bulk buying and bulk operations and uh, first service is going to use a lot more technology than greenthal or a few of the others have been willing to use great amazing and um so as far as uh with being a commercial real estate lawyer what do you think are the skills that are unique to being a commercial real estate lawyer? And what should people, for example, in law school right now, work on to become a good commercial real estate lawyer? Well, first, spend a year or two being a used car salesman. Okay. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I did that during college, um, among other things. But uh, in, in the end, any kind of sales job. Got it. Um, used car sales is one of the best because you're essentially haggling with a product where the buyer needs to do due diligence, whereas the seller is trying to get you into contract. Right. And you basically end up learning the, the down and dirty mechanics of the deal. Right. Um, but really, any kind of sales job, especially where you get to negotiate terms. Mm. I don't mean sales you know, at a McDonald's where the Big Mac costs what it costs. Right. I mean somewhere where you get to haggle pricing, where you get to haggle terms. Door-to-door right. um, -door salesman is a great job. Um, not a great job isn't a great job, but a great job where you get to learn the skills of negotiating with the other side, doing your due diligence, making sure you know more than the other guy does. Right. Because that's, that's the real art of the deal, knowing more than the other guy does. Yeah. Because knowledge is power, knowledge is money, and if you know the value of the deal better than the other side, 
the advantage is yours. 100%. So have the knowledge behind you and have the people skills to kind of communicate your vision to other people. Basically. This is where commercial transaction attorneys are often, at a, and real, basically any transaction at attorney is at a disadvantage to a litigation attorney. Because if you're just doing transactions and you haven't had one go wrong yet, you may be using a template contract without realizing right. that Clause 37A is a minefield. And if you only do transactions, when a transaction goes sideways, you say, oh, I don't handle that. Here's a litigator's card. Good luck. Right. And you never get to see essentially what happens in the worst case scenario. Mm. So you continue using that same contract and you, you never discover stagnant. that that was the problem that torpedoed a deal you worked on five years after the fact. I see. Because you don't get to participate in the litigation. When I get to see how everything goes wrong mm. and then I draft the contract... You know, my real estate contracts are different than most other attorneys I've seen. They're written from the perspective of how do I avoid litigation? Mm. And if we are forced into litigation, how do I make sure we win? Right. And do it in a way that minimizes questions of fact, minimizes any kind of murky um, clauses in such a way where I know this particular clause has already been through litigation. Right. This is what the finding was. Therefore, I can rely on that language. But if you put a comma there, you'll undermine everything because right. now it'll be a whole new question of fact on what that sentence means. Yeah. So don't put the comma or you're going to screw up the deal. <laughs> Got it. Understood. And how do you stay um, kind of current on the changes and the trends in commercial real estate law with the governments and whatever it is? What resources do you use? So first off, what every lawyer should do is join both their state and American Bar Association. Okay. So I'm in the ABA, I'm in the New York State Bar Association. You should also join your regional bar associations, whether it's NYCLA, the New York City Lawyers Association, or even uh, county-specific bar associations right. and field-specific bar associations. There's also ethnicity-specific ones, but I'm not sure they'll help you with any substance, maybe networking. You know, we do have like the Russian-American Bar Association. Right. I didn't learn anything at any of their meetings, but... The drinking's good. It's there. <laughs> but, uh, but the bar associations are step one. Step two, within the bar association, join, your spe join sections specific to your field. So, for example, I'm in the real property section, the general litigation section, the commercial and federal litigation section, um, the commercial transaction section, and so on. Those send you regular digests when there's new changes in the law, mm. there's updates on interesting cases, updates to legislation, and so on. Um, so that's where you can get Great. a lot of resources and you also get um, basically a chat board. So let's face it, no matter how experienced you are, there's something you don't know. Right. And to have a chat board where you can type out, you know, hey, a potential client came to me today and he had this interesting dilemma. Anybody have any idea of what I do in this mm -hmm. case? And send that out. And within 24 hours, you'll get responses from eight or nine lawyers who will then disagree with each other. Right. And there'll be a dialogue. And suddenly you've got multiple experts discussing the topic at no cost to you and you get to learn something and everybody gets to debate an interesting topic right. and maybe we reach a consensus and we know what to tell the client. Right. Or at least we tell the client, well, there's competing views on the topic. Here's, what, here's what's available. Right. And that, that's a great way to make friends, learn more in your field and also find people to cross-refer because I don't do everything. Right. You know, there's a lot of stuff where it's just not my field. Other people and, are specialists. Yeah, and I will go onto that chat board and I'll say, I need a landlord-tenant lawyer in Buffalo mm. because I'm not going up to Buffalo. Right. I can do it, but I won't. And the client wouldn't want to pay me, so <laughs> anybody do that over there. And having those resources is great. And then the next step is to actually join committees, get on boards. Um, I sit on more committees than I care to remember at this point. I'm the co-chair of the technology and the law committee. Uh, uh, um, Committee of the New York State Bar Association. I'm on the CPLR committee, which is the Civil Practice Law and Rules. That's the committee that recommends all of the changes to tweak how mm. our legal system actually works. That one's actually a great honor to get onto because it, it's one thing to know how to work within the legal system. It's another thing to have the opportunity to improve the system itself. Right, 100%. So, so you mentioned this concept where you're kind of um, having dialogue with other lawyers who have had previous experience with the deals that you're working on. Uh, what's kind of been a difficult case that you've worked on where um, you didn't really know what you were doing, but you had a dialogue with someone else and you kind of came to a conclusion? Well, the, I took on a set of cases um, that were really new to everybody, mm. um, which were probably my greatest and most interesting challenge. I actually ended up writing an article for the New York Law Journal or the New York State Bar Association Journal about it and it ended up getting picked up. Um, so what happened was... 
there was an insurance company called MLMIC. And it was a mutual company. If you're familiar with mutual companies, that means all the policyholders are, in essence, owners. Mm -hmm. So if the company has a surplus, you get a little dividend, which they usually apply to your renewal, so right. you don't really think about it. Um, and that's how all these mutual companies operate. You don't really process the fact that they're mutual because the rebate gets eaten up and you don't think about it. So what happened was Warren Buffett decided to buy MLMIC which means it had to demutualize, and Warren Buffett had to write a check, essentially, to all the policyholders for their equity in the company. Mm. So this is where it got interesting. Now, when you buy car insurance, you buy car insurance for yourself. MLMIC was a medical malpractice insurance carrier. And so they um, sold insurance to the doctor, but in, in most cases, the medical practice paid for the policy as part of the doctor's you know, general fringe benefits. I see. Okay. So you come work at this hospital or you come work at this clinic, yeah. we provide you a salary, insurance, et cetera. Um, and so nobody really thought about who owned the policy. Was it the doctor because it named him as the policyholder or was it the practice because it was the one buying the and policy, the paying the bills, yeah. et cetera. And the, the checks ended up being huge, hundreds of thousands of dollars per doctor in many cases. Mm. So as you can imagine, the practice, which has 10 or 20, doc uh, 20 doctors, suddenly went, hey, wait a second, why are these checks being cut to the policyholders? Right. They're not the real owners. They're not the ones that paid for it. And the doctors are going, wait a second, I'm the policyholder. It says so right on the policy. Right. And litigation ensued everywhere. And it went all the way up to a court of appeals. And everybody was guessing how it would go. Mm. I took the position that the doctors were entitled to all the money. It's black and white. The contract says policyholder there's nothing left to interpretation. Right. Um, all sorts of other theories were advanced. I debated this topic with lots of lawyers. There were panels, there were symposia. Um, I was one of the few lawyers that took the position of doctors shouldn't have, because a lot of lawyers basically said, well, who knows what the right answer is, let's settle 50-50, 60-40, right. whatever, I'll get my guy something, everybody will be happy. That's usually the right answer in litigation. But on this particular case, I thought it was clear cut and so I stood my ground and I told my clients, look, this is one of those where you don't want to give up a hundred grand just to run off from litigation. And every one of my MLMIC related cases ended up with my clients getting a hundred percent. And ultimately the court of appeals agreed with my reasoning, which was very gratifying. Um, in fact, I'm 90% certain I can't prove it, but I'm 90% certain that whoever wrote the opinion for the court of appeals, right was basically paraphrasing my article because <laughs> okay. it went in the same order even like the reasoning went the same just all the words were a little different yeah um it, 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 like, like the student that's trying to plagiarize without plagiarizing yeah so i felt very honored that the court of appeals felt you know that my article was worth reading imitation is the highest form of flattery <laughs> exactly <laughs> for sure and um as far as uh the field of commercial real estate law how do you kind of see that changing over the next few decades commercial real estate law generally. Due diligence is going to become a lot more automated. Mm. So I'm visualizing that transactions are going to become a lot more computer and AI driven okay. and much less human driven. Mm. So right now, if you say wanted to buy this building, you would first go into, first there'd be a letter of intent stage, then there'd be a bunch of due diligence, then there'd be a contract, then there'd be another, God only knows how much due diligence, and then eventually a closing, assuming all the due diligence came right. out well. One of the reasons due diligence takes 30, 60, 90, 900 days is because we're manually gathering a lot of information, we're manually reviewing a lot of information, we're manually ordering studies, surveys, samples, et cetera. Well, the technology is almost there to make that instantaneous. It's really a matter of connecting the right databases and employing the right tools. Mm. Um, take surveyors, for example. If you buy land right now, a guy has to walk around with basically a big tape measure, yeah. marking out the survey and writing out how hey, many arcade. feet he walked this way and how many degrees he turned that way. And a lot of these uh, the property descriptions, you read them, you know, 12 feet from the old oak tree belonging to <laughs> Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> Really? That was 120 years ago. I'm supposed to find Mrs. Johnson and her old oak tree. That's where the property, you know, markers start. Right. Great. You know, we are at a point where we should be able to launch a drone up in the air. It should do a laser analysis, take a picture, draw us a 3D survey map, GPS tag it, and you should be able to then have, you know, a QR code you can scan to get right. an exact Google Maps marking of where your property starts and ends. We are not more than a couple of years away from that. 
Now, once we can do that and we can do other elements of surveying with drones and with high speed and precision, due diligence is going to drop. Mm. Um, you know, even now, I've, I'm already seeing property inspectors using tools that a decade ago would have seemed sci-fi. Mm. They're walking around with thermal cameras, aiming at the walls, looking for wiring and plumbing problems. They've got like just cool tech that yeah. they're coming with. Um, and it, it's slowly seeping in. In another 10 years, I expect that all kinds of inspections are going to be done with robots and scanners. And we're really getting close to Star mm -hmm. Trek. And as far as the contracts themselves, they're going to get more AI generated. Right. They're going to get more automated as more and more of the data becomes available to integrate. As it is already, 80% of my contracts are prepared by my practice management system. Mm. It puts in all the info, prepares the template, and then I just add rider clauses that are specific to that deal. But I don't have to specify obvious things that belong in every contract. Mm -hmm. um, so I see that happening more and more to a point where you call a lawyer, you say, I want to buy that building. Lawyer populates in the key bits, names, addresses, dollar amounts, any special terms, hits generate, a DocuSign contract goes out, right. everybody signs, lawyer clicks generate due diligence, checks off boxes of which services he wants. Something goes out and does it. Within a couple of days, it's all in the computer. The reports have been parsed by AI, which has flagged any issues. Right. So the lawyer just clicks through the six issues that were flagged, discusses them with the client, maybe renegotiates the price or the terms based on what the due diligence found, right. and we can have a closing in two weeks. 100%. I can totally see that being possible. And I think given a few software developers, six or seven pies of pizza on a weekend, <laughs> it could be done. Right, understood. So there's, there's a lot of improvement going on, but there's still a lot more room for innovation in the coming decades. Oh, absolutely. We are, we are far, far away from saying technology has achieved efficiency. Right, yeah. Technology has given us a vision of what efficiencies we What's could possible. achieve yeah. over time. Yeah, 100%. And um, I want to ask about leasing law. Um, what makes leasing law so complicated? And how do you help your clients navigate the complex legal aspects of leasing commercial property? So leasing is incredibly ugly in New York. Yeah. Um, leasing commercial property is actually easier than residential property. Right. Um, there's a lot less protections for the tenant and a lot less um, restrictive rules. So in a commercial property, you can get the tenant out a lot faster in the mm. event of a default. There's a lot more, I don't want to call it self-help, but there's a lot more flexible remedies available. Mm. Leasing commercial is actually not quite that difficult, provided, and this is a key fact, provided if you're representing the tenant, you understand your client's business. Right. Yeah. And I don't just mean you understand what they do as in, oh, they're going to be running a dry cleaner. Get to know your client's business. Do you need exceptional amounts of water? Do right. you need exceptional amounts of electricity? The nuts and bolts. Are you going to generate no, uh, noise, heat? Do you need after hours access? Figure out from your client what all the needs are for their mm -hmm. business. And it becomes super easy to prepare a lease that makes sense for them. Right. Because then you look through the proposed lease, identify anything that's inconsistent with their business needs. Right and negotiate to get that out and put in clauses that they need. Um, the aspects of commercial leasing that are probably the most complicated are when it comes to licenses, permits, et cetera, where it's outside of the control of either the landlord or the tenant. Right. So if I want to open up a bar, I'm going to need a liquor license. How long will that take? Will the landlord give me um, a concession? Will I get free rent during the build-out right. process? Um, will I agree to operate without a liquor license until I get one? Right. Those kinds of things. And again, it's a matter of understanding your client's business plan. Right. And more often than you'd imagine, it's the commercial transaction attorney's job to tell their client this isn't going to work. Mm. What, your, what your vision is and what the landlord's vision is for how he wants that space used, they just don't match. If you try to do this here, you're going to end up in litigation and here's why. Mm. And again, this is where being a litigator comes in handy because I've seen the restaurants fall apart over the liquor license or, you know, a terrible partnership dispute because three partners decided to open up a restaurant or a dry cleaner or whatever together and they all had different visions. Right. And nobody actually sat down and discussed all the details of their visions, put them all together and said, hey, these don't match. Mm. How are you going to run a business together? Right. 
And that, that is the largest pitfall of not understanding the business. And how do you go about, what are your kind of ways to start to understand? Do you, do you have an interview with your clients where you kind of walk them walk through their business? Oh, absolutely. I basically, if it's a startup, right. I ask them to tell me what they, what they envision the company doing over the next five to 10 years. Right. Give me the six-month plan, the one-year plan, the five-year plan, the 10-year plan. And then if we're talking about commercial real estate leasing, let's discuss how long do you plan on being in the right. space. And which plan does that space have to match with? And what's your plan for getting out and where are you moving to after that? Mm -hmm. And if they can explain all of that, then they're ready to stop leasing. When I get I don't knows, I'm not sure, we haven't thought about that yet, I say, well, then hold off. You may think this space is a great deal, but when you're paying for it and you can't use it for what you thought you were going to use it for, it's going to be a problem. It's not going to be a great deal anymore. Yeah, for sure. Um, And how do you kind of advise clients on managing things that are out of control, such as zoning laws, regulations, local ordinances, uh, with their commercial real estate transactions? Um, Well, they need to understand them before they get into them. So it's really a matter of explaining to them what the obligations will be Mm -hmm. and making sure they understand. And as lawyers, explaining it in writing in a way that they reply to so they can't later say, oh, you never told me that. Because sometimes clients will do that. Right. 100%. And can you provide any advice for commercial real estate investors and property owners on how to avoid and resolve disputes in the commercial real estate industry? Well, avoiding is really a matter of drafting your contracts correctly. Plan out what you're trying to do. Make sure your document accommodates your plan and isn't just a standard lease. Way too many, especially small business owners, will look for a space, they'll find a space, they'll say, this looks great, it's what I needed. And if that's The tough. landlord hands them a template lease yeah. and they sign it blindly because it had the right number of months and the right number of dollars per month. Yeah. And let's face it, those are the only two clauses that matter, right? Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> read the rest. Because then they discover that, oh, we don't have after hours access and we were going to spend you know, till 2 a.m. working in here, or we don't have this, or we don't have that, or it turns out we don't have parking spots with this lease, or any number of things. And when they discover it after they've signed, there's very little they can do because getting out of a commercial lease, not as simple as one would imagine. Mm, 100%. And um, what should a commercial real estate investor know about recourse and non-recourse guarantees? I mean, non-recourse is um, not really a guarantee. Non-recourse basically means if, let's say, you sign the lease in the name of your business and the business fails and doesn't pay the rent, oh, well, once you write a personal guarantee, you're personally liable. So if your business fails, you don't just get to say, my LLC went bankrupt, I don't owe anybody anything. They will sue you personally. Now, there is also a concept called a good guy guarantee which is what most la- most reasonable landlords will ask for. And I think, honestly, if you're a tenant and you're refusing to go with a good guy guarantee, you're not a reasonable tenant. Yeah. I would never advise a landlord to rent to you. Yeah. Um, for anybody not familiar with a good guy guarantee, it generally makes you guarantee the lease for the period you've occupied the place, plus a little extra period yeah. to let the landlord release. So practically, you give your landlord notice, hey, my business is going under. I didn't realize this was going to be so hard. So I'm they failing. Tenant. I'm giving you my notice. I'll be out in a week, and I'll pay you for the next 60 days, right. and then I'm done. And that way, it limits the tenant's liability to just the time occupied and the time it takes to flip to the next tenant, protects the landlord, but without the landlord getting a giant windfall of you guaranteeing 10 years into a lease that you defaulted right. on in the first year. Because yeah. that's not fair. Yeah, 100%. And uh, how would you go about determining the best type of legal entity that a real estate entrepreneur should operate his or her company under? Uh, what factors should they consider? I mean, personally, I don't think most of the uh, of the entity choice has to do with whether it's for real estate or anything else. I think in the end, it's a tax question. Mm. Because... Um, like for example, my, I'm a fan of S corps because they're extremely easy for tax purposes. But an S corp has its own dangers. So say you're over 65 and you're trying to keep your incomes down so that you qualify for a Social Security, yeah. Medicare, etc., without obscene um, surcharges. And so you don't want an S corp where all of the income that you generate from say having commercial real estate and collecting rent goes directly into your personal 1040 as additional income. That's going to drive your 
personal income make up, sense? Yeah. and you don't necessarily want that. Yeah. A C corp in that case may be more handy because the money stays in the company until you actually issue dividends, distributions, etc. Mm -hmm. You pay the corporate tax, but not an individual tax. You can reinvest that money to buy more real estate without it ever having to have been subject to that personal tax. Um, but that's just the corporate examples. Mm -hmm. Then there's LLCs, which can be taxed as sole ownerships, partnerships, S-corps. You, you get a whole menu of things yeah. to choose from. And in reality, whenever my clients ask me, oh, should I do an LLC or an S-corp? My answer is always one and the same. Speak to your accountant. If right. you don't have a good accountant, I can point you to a few. Right. But the question is a tax question. Tax question, question. okay, yeah. got it. Um, and... Uh, let's say someone out there right now is buying a commercial property and the seller asks what type of transfer document they prefer. How would you go about advising a client on whether they should go with a warranty deed, special warranty deed, quick claim deed? I mean, practically speaking, quick claim is the crappiest form of deed. Yeah. Quick claim deed basically means I'm not promising to you that I own this place. Yeah. I can give you a quick claim deed right now for the Empire State Building. How yeah. much is it worth to you? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Because I don't happen to have any interest in the uh, in the Empire State the, Building. Yeah. Um, bargain and sale deed is generally the most common one and more specifically bargain and sale deed with covenant against grantors acts. Mm -hmm. So essentially, um, whereas a warranty deed is a complete guarantee and that's the, the best deed, right. the bargain and sale is the one that's most commonly used because a warranty deed basically means that the seller continues to be liable to you after the sale mm -hmm. for anything that happens to be wrong with title because they're giving you a warranty. Right. Um, a bargain and sale deed basically means you've done your due diligence, you're getting a title policy, which will be the thing that's right. liable, and the only guarantee you're getting from the seller that you haven't verified personally with the title company and bought insurance for right. is that the seller hasn't simultaneously or previously conveyed the property to someone else. Hmm. So before I came in here for a closing to give you the deed, I didn't go into the other conference room and give somebody else a deed I that see. hasn't been recorded yet. Okay. So that's the... Um, uh, so that's the covenant that I, as the seller, haven't acted in bad faith prior to selling to you. So does one favor the other? One type of deed favor the seller more than the buyer? Well, the deed that favors the seller the most is the quick claim right. deed because yeah. I make no promises. Yeah. The bargain and sale with covenants um, is that reasonable one where I'm basically saying, well, I can't guarantee that the guy three owners ago didn't do something wrong right. and there's it's a the title. But I will promise you that since I bought the property with my title and my insurance, mm -hmm. I haven't done anything to alienate it. it or 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 put a cloud on it in any way. Right. So I'm able to transfer to you what I purchased. Got it. So that's the fair deed that doesn't require the seller to, you know, guarantee the land is rightful from the beginning of right. time. Yeah. The warranty deed favors the buyer the most because then in addition to your title company, Seller's you don't liable. have to sue the seller if yeah. anything goes wrong. 100%. And um, so there's this term that always is thrown around in real estate contract, uh, as is. What should an investor know about this term and how can they prevent issues from occurring in the future? Mm. So as is is a variable term. As is is still subject to the various laws of the state of New York and the city of New York. And as is will generally still have clauses, even in a template contract, yeah. as is, except for <laughs> these 35 <laughs> items, plumbing, electrical, roof, uh, uh, foundation. And you look through the list, and it's like, so what's not? Yeah. So what is as is? The sheetrock? <laughs> you know? And even then, it's like no holes bigger than right. a quarter inch. Um, so as is is only defined by the contract. Hmm. Um, there is no general standard for as is, except of the contract is completely silent to definition. And if you've got a contract where it's completely silent to definition, okay. you have the worst lawyer in New York, fire them immediately, <laughs> because there should never be an undefined term that's left open to interpretation, right. because that is literally how you avoid litigation. Right. Make sure your contract is so clear that there's no two ways of reading any sentence. And no commas. <laughs> oh no, your commas just have to be correct. Right. The, the, don't don't leave a dangling modifier anywhere. Right. Um, and, and that's really all there is to it. Because if you don't define as is, then I'm going to argue on behalf of whichever side hires me that as is either did or did not mean whatever it is that's not convenient for my side. Right, 100%. Yeah. And um, so let's say another a scenario. Let's say somebody purchases a development site and for whatever reason they receive an injunction preventing them from building on the site. If the reason for the injunction is not listed as a title policy exception uh, due to the neglect, neglect of the buyer, is the buyer protected in the court of law? No. Um, but let me put it say, uh, it, it's all subject to speci very specific facts. Mm -hmm. 
But generally, if it's the buyer's negligence and not the title company's, right. and the buyer didn't do enough due diligence to Themselves figure to, out yeah. their plan and figure out what they planned on building and right. to make sure that what they wanted to build was actually possible, well, then they didn't spend enough time with their lawyer plotting and scheming what they're going to do before actually doing it, and right. they stepped in it. Because the title company is not liable to you for the things you were going to do but didn't tell them about. Right. Um, so the title company will simply tell you, you have clean title. Mm -hmm. If it turns out the city doesn't allow you to put a marijuana shop next door to, to an elementary school, and that was shocking to you because you didn't Google it it's first. It's on the buyer, yeah. That's, you know, that's on you, and now you have a piece of land that you can put something else on or resell. Right. Got the it. good thing with real estate is generally if you discover that you can't build what you wanted to, you can usually find someone to sell it to and break Someone's even. Someone's going to buy it. Yeah. Real estate is, you have to put an effort to lose money in real estate. Yeah. If you do your due diligence, but then again, in your scenario, it sounds like the buyer didn't. Right. So maybe they'll lose money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if a real estate sponsor wants to acquire properties in multiple states through an LLC, what state do you think has the most flexibility right now as a formation jurisdiction? Most flexibility? Ooh, I don't know that I can answer that question because realistically, you need to survey all fifty states and do a comparison. And off the top of my head, right. no idea. My answer to you. I generally don't advise my clients to go out of state to form their LLCs mm. because you open yourself up to so many extra problems. Right. Um, so imagine right now I told you that Hawaii was the best state to open an LLC in for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. You open up your LLC in Hawaii and you're going to operate in New York. Right. And then you do something wrong and someone wants to sue you. And they sue you in Hawaii. Mm. So what court. are you going to do? Fly down to Hawaii for litigation? <laughs> Not particularly convenient, especially since the lawyer that you've been doing all your work with is here in New York, right. and he'll fly to Hawaii for six months on your behalf. You don't want to see that bill. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, realistically, I'm a fan of incorporating or forming your entity where you are mm. and not trying to, you know, there, there's people that, for example, will form an LLC in upstate New York rather than in New York City because right. the publication fees in New York City are like $1,000. And they're two hundred dollars upstate. Cheaper, yeah. Well, you know what? If you're gonna save eight hundred dollars and end up sticking your company out in Buffalo, yeah. and then later having to deal with mail forwarding, changes of address, it. refiling things, you're gonna spend more time and money than eight hundred dollars. Just if if you don't have eight hundred dollars, don't form an LLC. Form right. an S corp. They're cheaper. Right. <laughs> and what do you think about Delaware? The rising popularity of everyone doing their LLCs in Delaware. I mean, the only reason Delaware is popular for LLCs is because of something called the UCC, the Uniform Commercial Code. Right. Now, the Uniform Commercial Code is not itself a, uh, a set of laws. It's rather a proposal right. by an independent entity that says, this is what we think commercial code should be. It's the model. Right. And what happens is a lot of states adopt the model because why would legislators think of their own ways to write laws if somebody's written it for them right. and explained why it works well and here you go with all of the notes and practice commentaries and just take it and use it. Right. Um, yeah, it just makes more sense to take the thing that works and it creates a more uniform set of laws throughout the country. So what Delaware did is early on, it declared that it will always adopt the UCC model UCC, yeah. and it will adopt uh, amendments to it just as soon as they're promulgated. And therefore, if you're in Delaware, you can be confident that your transactions are going to be governed by the UCC. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? New York's done the same thing. We did it a few years later, missed out on the opportunity to be a Delaware. Right. But right now, if you set up your LLC in Delaware and I sue you in Delaware, you're going to have a headache. Um, and Delaware also requires you to pay a registered agent fee. Mm. So now you're paying 100 bucks a year for somebody to have a mailbox for you to accept that lawsuit where you're going to get sued, overnight it to you, and then you got to hire a Delaware lawyer. Right, yeah. Yay. So you think, <laughs> so you think um, overall um, it's more practical just to form your LLC in the state that you reside in and yes. you do business in? Yes. And it also makes it cheaper as far as if you ever are in litigation, not just based on the location, but do you really want your New York lawyer trying to litigate based on Delaware LLC law? Yeah. It's different. It, it, he may know it or not. Yeah, got <laughs> it. And um, as far as uh, financings, uh, why do most financings nowadays require a special purpose entity to hold title? Well, is it to protect them, protect it, their backs? Basically. Okay. That, that's long and short of it. Um, generally, I mean, I'm a fan of segregating every transaction as mm -hmm. best as possible. Um, it's the same as property management, for example. You know, why should you have a separate bank account for every capital project? Yeah. Aren't you going to end up with 20 different uh, bank accounts for one condo? Yes, 
But when you start the job and you finish the job, you yeah. start the account at zero and you end the account at zero and everything's accounted for and you don't have all kinds of mixed mess. Makes more sense. So yeah. I'm personally a fan of separate holding entities, separate, per uh, you know, especially purposing everything in every subfield mm. just so that accountability is crystal clear. And if you ever need to issue reports, here you go. Here's the thing, start to finish. Great, understood. And um, how does creativity play a role in real estate law? Can you think back to a time where you chose to think differently and came up with an out-of-the-box solution to a problem that your client had? Oh, I mean, creativity is Every day. The, the absolute most important thing in both litigation and transactions. Mm. I mean, a lot of times coming up with creative solutions to settle a case isn't about money. It's about figuring out what everybody really wants. Yeah. Like I recently settled a case where my client would have spent $2 million easily on litigation just out of principle because they wanted the other guy to know that they won. <laughs> and the other guy was willing to spend $2 million the same thing. for the exact same reason. <laughs> and it took a lot of creative strategy to get each one of them to realize that there are other ways of Resolving, winning yeah. without spending that much money and without wasting the court's resources. Yeah. So a lot of times the creative solution is to do something you know nobody really thought to in the past. Renegotiate the lease, repurpose the building, mm. tear the whole thing down and make a joint venture. Mm. Um, any number of things where, uh, I'll give you an example. I want, uh, I, I, this, uh, this is a cute little strategy. I had a breach of contract case between an employer and employee or um, independent contractor and corporation. And there was also a, uh, there was also a potential, so, so the claim for the breach of contract was from the employer side mm -hmm. or from the company side, but the independent contractor also had claims of de facto employee status and all of the extra liabilities for mm. the landlord involved in that. So I commenced that second action and used it as leverage to settle the first on favorable terms. Okay. Because my client didn't actually want any of that employee status, right. but that would have cost the employer a lot more. And so the employer was willing to give up on his contract claims to get rid of the potential employment. Claims. I see. Okay. So a lot of times you can't just look at the issue in front of you, but you have to step back and say, well, let me see the whole board. Right. You know, litigation is like playing chess. If you focus on one set of pieces, you will lose yeah. because you're going to get flanked. So the, the key really is to understand what both sides of the, of the spectrum want and kind of tailor to both of these sides to have an effective solution. Exactly. And to remember that the transaction is not the entirety of your client's life. Mm -hmm. That it's entirely possible they might have hired you for the transaction, but the best thing you can do for them is halfway through say, you know what, this is a terrible transaction, mm -hmm. don't do it. Here's an idea of how you could make it better, or here's a better transaction or a better property, or have you actually done the math? Will this ever work? Are you going to break a profit, right. or are you going to just break even for 10 years and be miserable? <laughs> right. um, and what are some questions that you see uh, buyers often neglecting to ask sellers when purchasing commercial real estate asset? Enough of the financial due diligence and enough of the structural due diligence. So what often happens is, um, and again, this isn't just for sales. This is uh, and just not just for commercial sales. Mm. Take you know anybody buying into a co-op or a condo. You get financials. You, your lawyer does some due diligence. Right. But in most cases, commercial or residential, how far does the lawyer go? Well, the lawyer will go as far as you pay him to. Right, yeah. If you've got a flat fee attorney that's just pushing the transaction to a close, they will look at, the at best, the last year or two of minutes of the board and the last two years of financials. Mm. And they're going to say, oh, there's still money in the bank. It's all fine. Really? Based on two years, you're going to tell me the health of a big commercial building? What's their local law 11 status? Are they in compliance? Are they about to have bricks falling mm. down? Are they about to have a $3 million assessment? Right. Um, what's their status on local law 97? Is their building energy efficient? Or are they about to have to skin the whole thing and put in new windows, doors, yeah. you know, walls, <laughs> roof, and Important everything yeah. and replace the entire heating system and plumbing system and so on? And they've got 10 million of expenditures coming up next mm -hmm. year. Because the last two years of the board only show what the board did or what the board talked about. Yeah. What they don't show is what the board failed to do or yeah. talk about. So not doing your own due diligence and not digging back on all of the inspections and records for at least five years, mm. that's how you step in it. Understood. And conversely, are there, are there questions that kind of sellers forget, regret to ask buyers in a commercial real estate transaction? 
I mean, generally, sellers don't care very much about the buyers as long as the check clears, so right. to speak. So I don't know that they need a lot of details, with the exception where the seller is going to, uh, where, where the buyer is going to be liable to the seller after closing. Right. Yeah. So any time where you're doing a lease to own, where you're doing seller financing, where you're doing any of that, well, then you're not really the seller. You're the lender now. Yeah. So act like the bank. Do you know full due diligence? Make sure your first lien position. Make sure. You've got a separate title policy to protect you. Um, basically, don't act as just the seller. Right. The seller's questions really should be how quickly can you close and are you putting money down in escrow so I get to default you when you don't and keep your money. Right. If both of those things are true, those are the main things. Right. Beyond that, usually you don't need to go into too much due diligence on the seller side. There are some exceptions. Uh, buying and selling when it comes to a nonprofit, for example. There, you may need attorney general approval. Mm. It, 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 it may become more complicated. But in the average case, if I'm selling you a building and you want to go into contract, as the seller, I want the shortest possible contract. Right. I'll be happy with a one-pager that says, you put down 10%, you're closing in 30 days, and on the 31st day, if you haven't closed, I'm keeping your 10% of the contract's void. Understood. The so, end. <laughs> so this question really only applies when the seller has a continued interest after the closing. Right, or or in specialty circumstances. Okay, so like non-profits. nonprofits. Um, any kind of licensed entities where you're trying to transfer licenses right. and so on. A anytime there's going to be continuing relationship between the parties. Understood. Okay. And uh, let's say you're working with a commercial real estate broker trying to get a deal closed. What can the broker do to make your job easier and in turn speed up the closing process? Acquire as much due diligence as possible before they ever get into contract. Okay. So here's how it usually happens. Um, broker sends me a deal sheet. Here's the deal, put a contract together. Yeah. And I start asking my 500 questions. You know, where are the financials? Where are the minutes? What can I review? When right. can I review it? Where are the documents? And the broker starts telling me, oh, I'll get you those. Yeah. And we're losing time while I'm waiting for things where honestly the broker knew this question was coming. It might not have been coming from me. It might have been coming from a different attorney. Right. But when he or she got a deal sheet, they would be asking these questions. So why not have the financials ready? Why not have all the corporate docs ready? Why not have the minutes, the everything? Just just get me a whole package right. so that when you send me that deal sheet, you can send me the deal sheet and say, and here's all the due diligence you right. need. Oh, that makes my life easier. That makes the deal go faster. Happier clients, 100%. mosey things along. So, and so, the broker has every opportunity to gather that while listing the property. Yeah. You know, the, the, There's time during which there's no rush you can follow up with the managing agent. You can follow up with the seller. You can follow up with the Department of Buildings. You can get all the reports you need and be ready to go. So while listing the, the property, the broker should start thinking about uh, the, sh the potential sheet of questions that you may have as a lawyer that he can already answer and send to you. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. There's no reason not to. I mean, they're already engaged with the seller if they're selling commercial real estate. Right. Well, I'm going to ask to see the last five years of utilities. Yeah. So gather them, it's have them ready. Tell the seller that when you first take on the listing, by the time it hits LoopNet or whatever, right. you should already have all that in hand. So if you get an offer on day one and it's accepted on day one, you can give me the due diligence on day yeah. one and we can close in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that makes sense. And what do you look for in a new hire? Hmm. The ability to think outside the box, the ability to take a one-line task that I assign them in Clio, and when they get to a point where they don't know what to do, I want them to ask me questions. Don't just guess and declare that you did it right. right. But before coming to me with a question, try, research, Google it, watch a YouTube video. Yeah. Most of the information on earth is available on the internet, um, if not all of it, all, all yeah. the time. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, try, try to figure it out. And when you come to me with a question, definitely come to me with a question and confirm your findings. But you should be coming to me and saying, you assigned me this, I got as far as that, I didn't know what to do with this, I looked into it, I think we should do A. Mm. Or it looks like we could do either A, B, or C. I think we should do that. Um, come to me with your proposal. I'll tell you if you're right or not, right. and then I'll point you in the right direction. But don't just give up instantly and say, oh, I've never done this before, let me run and find right. out what the answer is. Because that's not how you learn. That, that's how you just get by in life. And I don't need employees who get by in life. I want them to do better. I want them to improve. I, you know, I, I treat my staff like family. Right. I want every one of them to succeed in life in their chosen profession, whether they end up working at my firm or anywhere else. I'm very proud of some of my former associates who've gone on to, 
you know, very exciting titles dealing with international mergers and acquisitions. And I'm totally cool with that. I'm not expecting anybody to work for me for life. Right. But I want people who work for me to enjoy the job, to be eager to learn, and to always try their best. Beyond that, I will train them what they need to know. Great. Understood. And what value can a young person in law school provide for you so that you're more inclined to hire them or offer them advice? Honestly, have that, have that drive, have that desire to learn. Okay. I, I, I regularly hire before law school ends, yeah. meaning most of the attorneys that end up being associates at my firm Junior, st- senior started year. working for me during you know, first, second, or third year of okay. law school, in some cases way earlier. My next attorney to become an associate of the firm, who I already knows he's got a job uh, lined up, he's a third-year law student right now, mm-hmm. Once he passes the bar, he's good to go. He's got a guaranteed home in my firm. I actually coached him back when he was in high school mock trial. Oh wow! Back oh, just about a decade ago, when he was a freshman in high school, and he showed drive and interest, and just I could see right away he would make a good lawyer eventually. Mm. And then he reached out to me while in law school and said, "Hey, any chance you're hiring?" And I said, you? Yes. <laughs> That's great. Um, and how much of what you know today about commercial real estate law did you learn in law school? And how much, how much of it did you learn on the job? Would you say that law school kind of taught you the specifics or did it teach you mostly how to think like a lawyer? Oh, th- this is one of those where I feel guilty bashing on my law school or any law school. But to be honest, I don't think law school had the value for the money that you'd expect mm. in terms of what you learn. It helps teach you to think like a lawyer, right. to analyze things, but in reality, um, you learn it on you know, the job. It, it's it's funny to admit it now. Um, what what am I? Uh, oh God, sixteen, seventeen years almost out of law school, and it's uh, ad- admitting it now. I will tell you, I skipped quite a lot of classes. Mm. I just didn't see the value in them. Right. Uh, my view was I can read the textbook. If anything doesn't make sense to me, I'll show up to class and ask a question. Right. Otherwise, if I read it and I understood it, why do I need to no point. drive to Midtown Manhattan and <laughs> go find parking and go sit in a building for two hours for no good reason? Right. Um, I skipped a lot of classes. I also got CDs from, it was called the Great Lecture Series back then. And yes, we had CDs. We even had tapes. Um, and uh, I actually listened to lectures from Harvard Law professors and from Yale and from Princeton um, as I would drive mm. to and from school. Okay. So as I was driving to my contracts law class, I was listening to a CD listening, on contracts yeah. law from Harvard and then showing up you know, with, with that professor's view in mind. That being said, I can't say that that taught me all that much either. Law school is essentially just what you have to go through in order to be a lawyer. Understood. In practice, that same uh, kid I mentioned from freshman high school, I guarantee you that if immediately after high school he skipped college and law school and came to work for me or for any number of other good lawyers I know who are good at you know passing on their skills, by now he would be an exceptional litigator and he would have saved himself $300,000 of litigation costs. I don't, I don't necessarily think law requires a JD or, well, honestly, today, very few professions, I think, really require the degree that they used to mm-hmm. because the internet. Yeah. Because you can teach yourself on YouTube anything I can teach you, anything the best professor in Harvard exactly. can teach you. And odds are that best professor in Harvard is on YouTube and he's giving you the same show there. For free. As, right. You can go to Harvard and pay 60 grand a year <laughs> or you can log into YouTube in your pajamas exactly. and watch the exact same material. 100%. And then you can Google it all and you can cross-check Harvard against Yale against exactly. Princeton and get the best and the brightest all delivered to your bedroom at 3 a.m., <laughs> all for free, or the cost of internet. Right, 100%. What would you say is your favorite part about the real estate business and being a real estate litigator and lawyer? The knowledge, of, honestly, it, it, it sounds corny, but just knowing that I helped people right. um, avoid trouble or get themselves out of trouble with the least possible damages, right. um, and just knowing that by the time I'm done with a, uh, with a case, that somebody's life is better. Mm. Um, you know, I, 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 I pride myself on that more than anything. Great, understood. And who do you learn from at this point in your career? Who do I learn from? That's a good, a good question. I would say a few of the attorneys on the various uh, chat boards, um, I consider experts in their field. 
a few of the attorneys that I sit on the various committees and boards with. Um, those are probably the most frequent um, parties I would turn to. But honestly, learning is one of those things you can do from anyone, anyone. at any time. Yeah. So I can't say I didn't learn something from NPR while I was driving in today or right. um, you know, from any random newspaper article or whatever Google decided to feed me this morning. Right. Um, so I, I'd like to think I try to pick up knowledge wherever I can. Everywhere, yeah. And I don't think somebody needs to have more degrees than I do to pass that along. Got yeah. it. And I have my final question to wrap this up. What advice would you give your 22-year-old self about life, business, and relationships? Oh, I've thought about that many, many times. Obviously, I can't give stock advice, right? Because right, right. that would make life right now way too easy. <laughs> um, life, relationship, business. Um, I would say don't be afraid. Mm. Don't be afraid of just about anything other than getting arrested if you do something illegal. Be afraid mm. of that. Um, but beyond that, don't be afraid to take chances. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Um, the only person who never succeeds is the one who never tries. Everybody else succeeds to a point. You're never going to achieve every... Well, maybe you will, but most of us are never going to achieve every one of our dreams. But we will achieve some of the dreams that we put ourselves out there and try. You know, you can be afraid of trying skydiving or you can go skydiving and discover it's your favorite sport out right. there and you want to do it once a week. But you won't find that out and you'll miss out on all of it in life if you don't try it once. By the way, highly recommend skydiving. <laughs> Amazing. Um, check your own liability policies. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. That was, that was, there's so much value here to be gained and so much value to be applied to young professionals' lives and they can apply it to their career moving forward. Thank you so much, Alexander. Really appreciate it. It's been it. a pleasure. Thank you.